0: Hi, and welcome back to The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to welcome Anthony. Anthony launched Kakoa, a 17 million angel fund, in January 2022. Kakoa is backed by some of Europe's top Decacorn and Unicorn founders. Prior to launching Kakoa, with his partner, Carmen, Anthony was a partner at Speed Invest, where he led its fintech seed strategy. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are? And maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.
1: Anthony, welcome to the European VC. It is so great finally having you on the show. Uh, Thank you for having me, Andreas. We met you back in December and right away, David and I said, ah, this guy has some magic going on around him. So we want to get involved somehow. And that had us very hyped. And then of course you told us a uh, part of all that is that you told us the founding story of Coco. And I just love you to expand on that here for everyone in the audience to hear about you.
2: For sure, no, and expectations are high now. So let me try, sure. to, try to beat that. <laughs> I was born and raised in Greece, uh, quite the international family though, and went to the UK initially to study in Cambridge. And during my studies, as every economic major is, I was brainwashed to do consulting, but I realized it was not my thing at all, which is great because that got me into startups, actually. So my my first gig was essentially joining an invoice financing company, building credit risk models. That got me into fintech, which got me into VC quite quickly. So 2014, I joined Anthemis Group, which at the time was one of the few fintech-focused funds. So quite a privileged time. Uh, to be joining the space so since then you know i spent the majority of my career investing in what i call fintech is everything right so the premise that you know finance is a horizontal not a vertical uh, and as such there's opportunities across not only core finance but also the intersection of finance and other markets so think about logistics and trade finance right uh, health and insurance and beyond that but also fintech as a business model within vertical SaaS and marketplaces so you know at anthem is, which i spent four years I was quite lucky to ride the wave of fintech going mainstream, and ended up being close to some iconic companies like Carta, which was called eShares back then, or even Currency Cloud, which got acquired by Visa around a billion last year. I also invested at the seed round of TrueLayer, so Francisca and Luca, when they were just getting started. Then spent the next phase at Speed Invest, right, 2018, opening the UK for them because they were quite US centric at the time. And ended up leading Fintech Seed across Europe alongside Stefan. And while doing so, we were one of the most active Fintech Seed investors. So it was a lot of fun. I spent almost three years as a partner eventually and led around seven deals, including companies like the pre-seed of Primer in the payment space or the round of Nuco in home insurance, Wayfly, which I worked alongside Stefan on, among others. And then decided I wanted to do it in my own terms and my own fund, right? So I spent the last year and a half exploring that, putting myself in a position of flexibility and freedom to explore. And while doing so, I got very close to founder networks. So Unicorn and Decacorn founders in Europe, founders I had backed before, or operators of legendary tech companies, and co-invested alongside them as an angel. Uh, Initially, I said I'd do five angel investments. I ended up doing 16 in the last year, and companies like Ramp, uh, Network, Pledge, Finari, and many more. And it was there that I had an aha moment, at least for myself, behind Cocoa, which is something that I bonded together with Carmen uh, last year, right? Uh, which was in a very similar position to myself. So Carmen, I have known for seven years. We started as a similar time in VC. We say we're the same cohort of VC and became very quickly friends and neighbors. At some point, we were even working from the same coffee shop in South Ken called Idu, Not around anymore. Thank you, pandemic. Uh, <laughs> he was actually launching some UK outfit and was officeless and so was i uh, launching the same for Speed best and so last year actually the winter lockdown brought us back together in barcelona with a bunch of friends of ours and spent a lot of time together and bonded around the notion of a vc turned angel right and that was really the genesis of Cocoa.
3: i'd love to hear the story behind the name we love those stories right and it's super interesting and Cocoa is not something you'd associate to vc directly right
2: a hundred percent. Look, and, and, and it came very organically, actually. We were about to go meet someone who was going to support our fund, and we wanted to bring them something in Barcelona, right? And so we could tell you it was a very sophisticated way of coming up with it, By actually we went into a, a place in Barcelona called Coco Sampaca. They essentially... You know, sold chocolate but there it was and they had a display of chocolate and seeds right and we saw the seeds and the stages from cocoa which is the seed of chocolate towards uh, a chocolate right and we were like looked at each other and we're like wow there's so much resemblance right there's stages like there is in companies there's a lot of manual work and it's hard work to get from seed to chocolate and you know what it's punchy and everyone loves chocolate so you know ask carmen and you know she was a, a lot of the genius behind that but very much that was the genesis and that got us into a whole research loop so now i can tell you all the different meanings behind that but you know i'll spare you the details for now
3: but i think it's kind of cool how you own that to the extent that it's on your website on your deck. You have the
2: golden ticket
3: of, of, of the Chocolate Factory on your website. I love how you took it that
2: far. <laughs> so I'll tell you something and, you know, I wouldn't say keep it to yourself because a lot of people will listen to that but when we were fundraising, everyone keep, everyone keep it to yourself. So when we were fundraising, you know, in the docks end you know, we would look at, for example, stats and what slides would people look at more and the impact it would have. And there was one of the funder funds where one of the people there, basically the only slide that they looked at was the last slide, which was all about the story (laughs) of chocolate, right? So, you know, hopefully it had an impact.
1: I love that we're talking today to someone who actually managed not only to raise the fund quickly, but get oversubscribed, have to say goodbye to a lot of LPs that were interested and did so on the basis of what I would say is a very strong original thought. So with that set up, Anthony, I'd love to invite you to comment and tell us the story.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I think the reality is it was a different time in the market, right? Because that was just before January. So we were very lucky. We went out to raise it around November, actually, last year. And we did the first and final close at the end of the year in December. So it was quite short. We went out to raise a small fund of 15 million, right? And that was very important to us. So we had a very specific strategy behind the amount we wanted to raise. We wanted it to be small enough to allow us to not give a damn about stake and act like an angel, which is a core part of our strategy. And I'll tell you a bit more about that uh, after you know we also decided we would not have any vc funds as our lps right we love them a lot of them are friends of ours if not all of them and we wanted but we wanted to remain neutral to be able to give unfiltered investor insights to founders because this is a core part of our proposition we then decided we would optimize for a founder first lp base to be able to maximize the value we bring to our founders Right? And so by having a very specific strategy and being very intentful about the types of people we wanted as part of our LP base, we went out and raised with a systematic process and ended up being oversubscribed two and a half times. We did want to stay true to our model. Right, There's a big temptation to close at a much larger size, but we did end up closing very close to the initial target, $17 million. And our LP base ends up being 75% founders, 20 unicorn and unicorn founders, 15 founders we backed before, and operators from legendary tech companies. And the rest is founder funds and friends and family. So, you know, when it comes to the success of the fundraiser, and I was deliberating on that yesterday, I think it's a couple of things. I think our track record played a role. I think our positioning to the market, which was very fresh and differentiated. I think the actual fact that it was a bull market itself did help then our existing relationships and network. And in the end of the day, running a very systematic process. I think all of these things did the trick, plus our willingness to take a flight without hesitation to meet face-to-face any founder we really wanted to bring on board.
1: I'd love to dive deeper on this. So yes, we should also talk about the systematic process because I think that is some of the best practice that is less well-described. in The market and new managers are struggling to figure out exactly their path. But first of all, Let's talk about the LP base, why you chose to have this setup up as you did and what you saw as the pros, but also the cons that you knew, okay, we're letting go of some things Your VC funds, they can actually be very good partners for later stage financing. So yes, there's of course a pro in that you're independent, but there's also a con in that you don't have that connection as an LP uh, relationship would give you. So please do unpack all of this thinking behind your LP base.
2: A hundred percent. I think the first thing we wanted to optimize for is flexibility, right? Because this is our first fund and we decided for it to be small, but we really wanted it to be flexible, right? And so we decided against going for governmental LPs. We decided against going for very rigid LPs and it was also a quite small fund. So by design, that excludes a lot of the you know, really big pension fund type of LPs. And then similarly, we thought, you know, fund of funds are more institutionalized. They help you scale. Also on an SPV strategy going forward, there's a lot on the indirect strategy they like to do. At the same time, founders are very valuable as well. And to be honest to you, initially, we thought we would get 50% fund of funds, 50% founders, but then getting oversubscribed we got very overwhelmed by and humbled by the fact that some of the iconic founders wanted to invest like you know larger amounts, and we had to make the hard decision to stay true to our fund size, to not have pressure to deploy more, especially larger checks than we wanted to, that create friction and then depart from our model of being like an angel. And so we had to basically downsize everyone and also uh, decide for tilting towards founders a bit more and having some fund of funds stay close with, but not getting them on board in our first round. And that is essentially, we believe, optimizing for the value add we can bring to the table as fund one. And so that's how kind of all in all, we ended up deciding to have the kind of composition we ended up with.
1: If we then think about leveraging your LP base, because if anyone, you guys were allowed to then pick and choose, and, and that means that you could be very strategic around it, I'm also sure that you've then also had a lot of thought about okay, who do I want to use for what? Could you expand on that a bit?
2: Yeah, hundred percent. First of all, you know we're very thankful and grateful to our LPs every day, right? So you know, the, the, only the fact they backed us is a privilege. The way we think about it is, we make sure that the types of founders that we have as our LP base have a wide spectrum of domains and are best in class in different types of business models and categories, right? That helps us because that means that we can leverage their expertise when it comes to doing due diligence, for example, but also the portfolio founders of the people we back can actually leverage your expertise and network. Right. And so we were just very thoughtful on making sure that besides getting founders that we have backed before, that is always fantastic to have back in that we get the types of founders that are iconic founders that have done it before and can bring back to the founders that we back. When it comes to fund of funds, you know, we ended up getting a very few on board and these were people that believe in us from day one. And again, I think that institutionalization and that thought process behind the scenes always helps, right? And so that's kind of the value we see in them beyond others. You know, Andres and I have
3: had the privilege of talking with many GPs across Europe about LP makeup, the ideal LP, what are you looking for in LP, what are LPs doing right, what are LPs doing wrong, blah, 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 all of that. And one of the main things we hear GP saying is that they're looking for that longevity in their LP base. And I wonder... If that is something that you think of considering that your LP base is more made up of individuals, of founders, rather than institutions, and how do you think about the firm's development over time?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. That was a big part of the debate we had. You know, we did decide for fund one to be optimized for the value that we bring to the founders, knowing that fund two would potentially be a bit more institutionalized. Mm-hmm. You know, we are building a firm for the long term. I think that making the hard decision of not getting some funder funds on board, but actually staying very close to them and trying to, you know provide opportunities to them and then kind of having conversations for fun too, partly proxies for that. But you're very right. The other thing I will say, which, you know, was a big surprise to me and positive surprise is that you start having the new age institutions, right? If you think about some of the most iconic founders and, you know, don't want to name names, Out there of you know unicorn, decacorn, and beyond type of companies, they're committing significant amounts and they're they know. And because we you know we asked them that there's going to be a fund too, and they're very keen to keep doing so. And so, you start having this hybrid of like founders that are big enough that are partly institutionalized. And so, this type of entity, you get the best of both worlds actually. That's really interesting. Do you?
3: When you think about firm development and next funds, we see players out there that they increase fund size and then go, you know, this strategy naturally changes, obviously. But we see other players that just keep on doing small sized funds, you know, keep on doing that approach because that's what they're great at. That's what they believe in. What are your thoughts? Where do you lie in the spectrum uh, around fund two, fund three and adaptation or or updates of the uh,
2: investment strategy? time so maybe it makes sense to answer this in a two-pronged way like one is again kind of really highlighting what our strategy is today and why yeah. because that really makes a difference on how we yeah. think about so you know essentially right cocoa is an angel fund backed by founders right we are these eastern angels which means we invest small 200k to 500k collaborative checks at pre-seed seed across europe while supporting founders from that position as small peers, right? With unfiltered investor insights. So that part of being small is essential because it allows us to not give a damn about stake, which essentially means we can act like an angel and become an insider for those founders. So you know that means that a big part of our positioning is constrained by that size. So if you th- how we think about next funds it is that you know fund 3 we don't really know fund 4 we don't really know just because we don't know how the market would look like but we do believe that by being small we are optimizing for kind of capturing where the market is going and optimizing for flexibility. And so currently the plan is to remain small and agile but
1: you know time will tell. Anthony, I seem to remember that your deployment rate was quite short on the fund. And that back in December looked really nice (laughs) and wasn't something you would necessarily fear that much. You also ended up being very oversubscribed to in that sense. Hopefully it won't come back to bite you. But I think there are many managers out there that had the same thought. Let's raise a small first fund. Let's stay small so we don't have to fight as much, you know, the uh, micro VC model in many ways. But I'm maybe now finding, ah, I maybe would have wished that I had raced for more than 12 or 18 months of deployment. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: We actually don't. So we our investment period is three plus one years. Um, we are planning to deploy the fund in two years. In a bull market with the pace being higher, it would have probably been shorter. But now we have the luxury to actually extend that, and the reality is, and we were discussing that with my business partner Carmen, is that we think we're in a very privileged position at the moment because you know we've deployed a very small percentage of our fund, and the market is turning, and we do not have any, let's say, reason why to be in a rush. Yeah. So you know, to answer your question, I would advise always founders to keep that optionality, sorry, GPs to keep that optionality, because markets turn. Now when we look at the market there's still phenomenal talent coming out of companies now even more motivated than before the ones that do actually go to pursue building really interesting companies going after you know expanding markets right and that's a lot of what we love to be investing in so currently you know we're very much still uh, investing at quite a good pace but we do not have the pressure to do so which is a luxurious position i think connected to
3: this whole kind of last four or five minutes of conversation i'd like to step back just to get some context here because when you were giving your kind of intro to the listeners here you said that there was a point that you started kind of wanting to do your own thing and and moving out was it the biggest motivation there that you saw a whole opportunity in the market or was it that you're seeing something in the vc model that kind of pissed you and you wanted to play a role and just trying to understand what was the core motivator to go for this vc acting as an angel model right Yeah. So
2: I think it was more of a bottom-up thing, right? So it is not that we don't like the VC business model, right? Don't get me wrong. Uh, It's just that we wanted to create a fund that could act as an angel because we saw a gap in the market and opportunity, right? Someone who does not care about stake, right? Because when you are a VC to make the maths work, especially if you have a sizable fund, you need to become ownership sensitive, right? And that sensitivity is the one that creates friction in founder conversations. So we simply wanted to take that out of the equation so we could truly coexist with any round constitution and as such be always aligned with founders. So going back to your question, to be honest, I think it was a combination of two things. On the one hand, both Carmen and I really thrive on EQ, uh, relationship building and investing as an angel. And so basically we wanted to build a fund that plays to both of our personal passions. And secondly, as you said, we did see a big opportunity to support those founders with this in-house VC value add, right? Which allows us to back hopefully many more of the iconic companies that are being created in Europe now.
1: I love that thesis. And I really believe that European VC is lacking <laughs> players in this very angel-like manner. Who would you say are acting somewhat like you in the market that people should keep an eye out for?
2: So we don't like to compare ourselves with other people, but I think there's plenty of other great microphones, right? And I think that is just, you know, in the US, that's been widespread quite a bit. And I'm hopeful that this is going to keep happening in Europe because it's only a good thing for the ecosystem as a whole. So I don't know if we would compare ourselves like for like with the angel kind of fund on with anyone else
1: the u.s market has had this model that you're working with for quite some time and it's been the standard of i was about to say the standard operating mode is for many of the emerging managers that are micro vcs it is a new phenomenon in europe still i'm curious to hear how the reception has been to cocoa in the market
2: yeah we've been actually um overwhelmed uh, by the reception we've been very happy by it i think First of all, I think maybe the fact that we're doing it in Europe, I think pays that makes a big difference. I think we are privileged to be doing it at really quite an early time for emerging managers in Europe, right? And we really believe that the time is right in Europe now, right? In terms of the quality of talent, starting new companies, going to market with this has been just overwhelming, right? We just made our announcement a few weeks back. We've been overwhelmed by the reception. I think our model plays to the strengths of both worlds. So, you know, founders embrace us because we help them at the most vulnerable uh, and we become peers and we help them hack the system. And the VCs, which are all friends of ours, right? We can coexist with all of them. And so the combination of the two creates a positioning that's quite powerful. Looking at our positioning and the model, it's been received really well. Looking at the emerging managers as a whole, I think, you know, we're all peers and we all kind of collaborate. And so the ones that do exist in Europe have also embraced us quite a lot. All of them were friends of ours before, but now we're even closer and we collaborate quite actively. I do You know, hope there's more and more things like your podcast or OpenLP or other things like that, that actually give even more transparency to that, to help even more emerging managers start. And I'm excited to see how that goes. And we did do our small contribution by open sourcing kind of an emerging manager toolkit that describes the service providers we use to launch the fund. So, you know, I think I'm hopeful that this is going to create the spiral and that there's going to be more and more emerging managers coming up in
1: Europe. That is only all that we're seeing for sure. This is hopefully a trend that will uh, be able to outlive the current market. I'd love to hear, Anthony, what are your reflections on how this strategy will work in the new market? Do you think it's going to be better or worse for you?
2: Yeah, so it's a really good great question. I think firstly, we're really lucky to have closed our fund at the start of the year, right? And firmly believe that with those markets, some of the best founders and companies will be created, right, in the coming years. I think thankfully our model is to invest in 8, 10, 12-year horizons. So we do not care as much about cyclicality when it comes to the companies we back. But we're, of course, observing very closely how the market is adjusting today and are being very disciplined and mindful of that when it comes to our investing approach, right? So whenever, we look at our model, we believe it kind of plays well in both markets, but there's actually very interesting opportunities in the coming kind of bear market as well, right? Because if you think about it, in both markets, the most exceptional founders of pre-seed will keep getting a lot of investor interest and will need to navigate all that. And that's where we step in to help And at the same time, to add to that, in the current kind of bear market that's coming now more than ever, founders need to be very mindful of the fundraising decisions they're making, because the implications might have even greater effects. Because as we know, down markets are much less forgiving, right? And so we do believe that there's going to be a very big opportunity for our model to step up its game.
3: I want to come back to a topic just because I find it very interesting. And I wanted to ask, and we kind of went through it, which is connected to investment strategy. Anthony, you also shared that you got, you know, kind of part of what spurred this adventure for you in the early days was also that you got very close to some founder networks. And I'd love to ask you about the sourcing strategy of Cocoa, right? What are the core building blocks of it? And also I'm quite curious actually to know what are the implications of it, plus the fact that, you know, you are micro VC, you are a small team, you know, you can't afford what the big boys and the big players can afford. So the implications it also has in terms of geographic coverage and your thoughts around that.
2: hundred percent. So
3: we focus on Europe,
2: right? I think that's number one. And it's important to clarify uh, both Carmen and I are based out of London uh, most of the time, but we do spend a week, a month in out of paris and berlin respectively right so i go to paris carmen goes to berlin so we're on the ground proactively being local in the three regions and we do believe that's kind of very helpful to cover the three regions which are one of the most active let's say very proactively. now opportunistically we cover the rest of europe and the way we do that i do not think there is a secret sauce there is a twist which comes to our model so essentially we do two three things one is we're very close to founders and angel networks, like many other people do, right? And these are angels and founders we've backed before. These are angel and founders that we've developed relationships for, for, you know, seven, eight years we've been in VC. These can be our LPs. But besides that, right, the fact that we are this in-house VC, the fact that we are the people that they can be vulnerable with, that we can help, means that when they have a friend that's starting a business, we start becoming the first port of call who they should talk to right now on the other hand vcs right they are all friends of ours a lot of vcs collaborate with each other right but we we have an incentive to share with them because we all coexist so we're better together and so we again our model creates a twist in the type of collaboration we have Mm -hmm. both with emerging managers both with micro funds, but also with bigger funds now on top of that we also have
0: Break
1: your confidential information. Alert. Break your confidential information. We can do anything on that, right? Yeah, we can. Okay. Anthony, I'd love to dive into a a question and and pick it up from where David asks. So, yes, small fund, small team, but also not a platform team. (laughs) And that is a tendency that's growing in Europe, right? The, The funds are getting bigger and bigger, and we're getting more and more of these behemoths that have a big-ass platform team to help them uh, add value. How do you think about your value add in contrast to that?
2: So that's right. I mean, and also like Speed Invest that I used to be part of has a platform itself as well, right? So I've seen that from the inside. We definitely are not a platform team and we definitely are a small team and we enjoy that, right? I think what you need to know is like, We're very much focused on being small and acting like angels and founders see us as such. So, you know, they will go to their lead VCs and they will expect their lead VCs for the typical asks and value add, right? And increasingly, as a big lead VC, you need to actually have a platform team to be able to cater for that, right? Or increasingly parts of a platform, depending on your strategic decision, right? So our value add will remain focused very much on being the in-house VC, right? And kind of enabling founders to get this unfiltered investor insights. And as a small angel, we believe that kind of is our, our core positioning. Now, besides that, we have an LP base that's founders and that's our value add on top. And then beyond that, you know, we do uh, basically have a few people that surround us. So we don't believe building a platform team in, in our positioning at the moment, but it is worth mentioning that we're privileged to have a few people around us who are at the top of their game, in their domains, and can help us scale ourselves when it comes to areas like people, marketing, and technical. And so it's value on top, but we will always try to help in those domains as well. And we have people that surround us to do so.
1: You're talking about scaling yourself, right? This is a topic we haven't spoken about, and I'd love to hear from you since you have the experience from the very big funds, and then you you now have very much also the experience of running a very small fund. How do you think about the operations of a very small team like yours? There's oftentimes this discussion, you know, is it superfluous to be paying for a uh, personal assistant, or is it not? (laughs) For a big fund, you can have that. For a small fund, you know, I'm sure that you guys are having that type of discussion. What type of software should we pick? All those discussions, right? I'd love to hear you. A hundred percent. And, you know, the one thing
2: you realize when you go out to raise your own fund is like suddenly the job is not only investing and portfolio managing, right? There's the LP side, which you get very close to, which you might have been a bit close to, but even more so. And there's a firm building side and all the operations that come with it, right? And so... Within that, I guess there's a question of like, do you hire for people? Do you have it in-house? Do you outsource? Do you have a productivity layer, right? Like a PA or someone to help you unlock time when it comes to that? And these are debates we're having, you know, every day with, with Carmen, right? And, you know, we initially decided... That like, it's good to, let's say, eat the dirt when you are your first fund. So like do everything and anything to learn that. And we were very lucky to be surrounded by other managers that were very helpful in guiding us to the right direction so that we can actually kind of make the, you know, the decisions we wanted, right? And so in the end of the day, like we separate some roles with Carmen, right? So like she will be the CMO, right? She will lead a lot of the legal stuff. I'll lead a lot of the finance stuff and the CTO, right? The tech staff. And the way we think about it and the way it's worked for us is essentially outsource to people that are fantastic at their business and then create processes between them and yourself that are very scalable, right? So, you know, we have an air table on the finance side and we have some phenomenal accountants that help us and any invoices uploaded there automatically, then we just approve everything else is taken care of, right? So with that, you can start really unlocking a lot of time or let's say minimizing the time that operational burden is taking. Now, all that being said, there's still so much work when it comes to operational And also the opportunity cost of not being focused on investing and portfolio managing is high. So, you know, currently we are debating and we are thinking about productivity layer, as you said, right? Someone who can supercharge us.
1: I'm sitting here thinking that someone should build a fund of fund focused on micro VCs and their value add should be uh, having a (laughs) a big ass team of in-house accountants and (laughs) PAs that, that know all the stuff that a VC needs. That would be fun David, I'll kick it to you.
3: Anthony, before we go into the last section of the podcast, which is a quick fire round, I just want to kind of do a comment, which I think is really interesting. And it's not really a question. It's more of a comment to some of our listeners. You know, we get a lot of emerging VCs or even aspiring VCs, you know, reaching out to us and asking, you know, what we think about XYZ, whatever, right? And I think what is interesting that I was kind of here reflecting about this conversation with you is that you were very, in my opinion kind of deliberate in some words you're using because you're creating a strong rationale for the fund and i think anyone that listens to this and goes through your website and starts looking at the core messaging right it's always the same and you've repeated it many times in different questions but i think that is actually a learning right i think that's a really important learning you're not saying we do this we also do that but we also do that and we can also do that no Or this, this, and that. And you're always repeating that. So I just wanted to highlight it. It's not really a question, but I think it's really, really, really interesting. And I can remember them right now, right? So Inside VC, unfiltered and biased, you know, you've said these words many, many times. I think it's a super important learning of how to create storytelling around your fund and how I think that that impacts fundraising. So I just wanted to point that out because that's really cool, Anthony. Do you want to comment on it or, or say anything?
2: No, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, you're starting a brand from scratch. So you want a couple key messages that always stay top of mind. So yeah, 100%.
3: So Anthony, quick fire round. We ask quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Let's do this. I'm ready. Awesome. First question. In venture, what areas excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited
2: about? So I've bucketed that into three things, right? So you have firm building. I love doing the nitty-gritty when it comes to running our tech stack. I'm not sure many VCs are into that. So in fund management, I love portfolio construction. So really kind of running our model and exploring that and how it evolves. Similarly, right? It's not the cup of tea for for everyone. And then finally, when it comes to investing, I love backing traditionally unsexy areas, such as like payments, infrastructure, even kind of compliance and reg tech. Amazing.
3: Second question of the Quickfire is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs who are out and about across Europe fundraising?
2: <laughs> so I guess like this topic can make for an entire podcast on its own, right? Um, okay, given the Quickfire, fire, a few tips I would share. One, have a thoughtful strategy on the types of investors you want as your LPs upfront. Two LPs. You need to illustrate access, differentiation, and ability to pick and win those deals. So keep that top of mind. I think relationships, number three, matter. So make sure the introductions you get to new LPs are done by the right people in the right context. And then finally, run a systematic process and stay focused. There are so many temptations to divert because everyone has an opinion. So fund size and strategy matters and stay focused.
3: I love that. There's so many opinions. Couldn't agree more. Third question: What can we expect in the future from Anthony and Cocoa?
2: So this is gonna be a bit of a non-answer. Sorry about that. So you know, only time will tell, I guess. And I don't want to spoil our future yet. But for now, we're super excited by you know to be in the market, being supporting founders as an angel with the VC expertise. We're humbled. By you know, our announcement and how it's been received by the people and the support we've gotten from the market. And we're super energized every day by the types of entrepreneurs we get to meet and back and can't wait for the next days ahead. So, you know, if you ask me again, just keep doing what we're doing. I'll be super excited and thrilled to do so. So.
1: Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for being a strong supporter of the UVC community. You are amazing and we're looking forward to do much more stuff with you.
2: No, no, thank you again for inviting me today. It was so much fun speaking with you. I'm really excited by the platform you guys are building and can't wait to see where you take it.
1: Thank you
0: for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at the EuropeanVC.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com
3: and be the first to get in the know.